When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On today's show, you have our first edition of our preseason episodes of The Deciding Point, where we will offer our top 10 teams heading into the 2024 Division I college tennis season. Simply put, this is one of my favorite exercises we do every year at Cracked Rackets, as it's our best mechanism for offering a look at how we think the upcoming college tennis season is going to play out. Of course, the next five weeks here at Crack Rackets, they'll be filled with debates. What are the best lineups we have in the country? Who are the breakout players we should be watching for? Who are the teams we need to look out for as we all, of course, try to forecast who our 2024 national champions will be? Of course, before we get into unveiling our top 10 teams, we wanted to mix things up a little bit this season. We wanted to offer all of you listeners a podcast that offers a behind-the-scenes look at how we come up with our Crack Rackets preseason top 10. We've expanded our voter pool to five people this season. Now, we'll figure out, I suppose, at the end of the year whether that was a wise choice or not. I'm also hoping to add a sixth edition for the start of the regular season. Trust me, this person, very well qualified. I'm very much hoping that they say yes. And again, we want to forecast how we see this season's going, uh, playing out. We want to offer all of you listeners a look at not only who the top 10 teams are, but on today's show, we want to discuss how our preseason poll has actually fared over the past years. In particular, we want to look at how our 2023 preseason poll ended up bearing out. We then want to get into the discussion. Again, who were the teams we considered for this top 10? What do the races for the top 16, top eight look like? Who are the most polarizing teams right now amongst our crack racket voters. Then we want to get into some fun things. The race for the number one conference champions. Who's the gal right now? It is going to be a jam-packed show that I am certain all of you listeners are going to enjoy. And joining me on today's podcast and thankfully joining me once again for our coverage throughout the course of this upcoming college tennis season is a man you all know best as the returning champion of returning champions here at Cracked Rackets, a man who enjoyed podcasting so much with us that he founded his own as he is the founder, of course, of the No Ad, No Problem blog and podcast. Of course, he was our host last year of The Deciding Point, and I'm excited to say he will be one of our hosts again this season. It is our dear friend, John J. Parsons, joining us on the podcast. Jay, hey, great shot. Welcome back to the show. You ready to kick off our 2024 coverage? 
I'm excited. This is year three of preseason content with Cracked Rackets. So I'm excited. We've got a lot to break down. And I think there's going to be some surprises for me as well. People should know that these votes are done anonymously, except our trusted CPA who helps us count them up. But yeah, I'm excited to hear about which teams were a little bit more volatile than, say, others. So I'm excited. Yeah, it's a fascinating season, and I mentioned this at the start of the men's podcast, which I recorded before this but will be released after this. It's a fascinating time in the college tennis universe. Not only do you have conference realignment on the horizon, most notably teams like Stanford, Cal, joining the ACC, Texas, Oklahoma, to the SEC, USC, UCLA, Washington, Oregon, all heading to the Big Ten. Not only is that on the horizon, But this is the last year of COVID-related eligibility, where all those freshmen from 2019, 2020, that remarkable depth we've seen across the top of the college tennis universe, a required depth almost to get yourself into the winner's circle, this is the last year where that really exists, obviously starting next year. Ooh, Jay's making a face. I like that I mean, let's not forget the Ivy League. Right. Who will have one extra year because they didn't play in 2021. So shout out to Alex Kotzen heading to Tennessee for that. uh, Very true. I should say then minimized, minimized impact from COVID related eligibility, certainly minimized much more than the extent we have seen over the past few seasons. You know, again, I think you see that fact that it's the final year of that COVID-related eligibility far more pressingly in our rankings than you do on the men's side than you do on the women's, just because, again, as you start to get down the men's list, you start to remember, oh, there are holes at five. There are holes at six for most teams in the college tennis universe. These last few years have been the exception, not the rule. You feel it way less so as you look at the women's rankings this year, Jay. It's just, again, a loaded team after loaded team. And to have a UNC team return, all six of their starters from last season, obviously when you have the headline of all six starters come back for the returning champions and they add one of the top recruits in the country, that is a standalone fact that is impressive on its own. But the Stanford 7, Georgia, A&M, again, you can go all the way down the list to even teams like USC with a couple of late recruits, teams like Duke, Washington, South Carolina, which under traditional years are absolutely in a top 16 conversation that might be left out uh, just given the depth that we have this year, Jay. It's a really strong season. And again, it's going to make 2024 really exciting. It may, dare I say, impact the accuracy of these rankings because I do think there are a lot of teams mushed together in, dare I say, tier two right now of in the national championship conversation, but maybe not quite in the inner circle. Before we get into that conversation, though, let's talk about the accuracy of our preseason rankings. I know you have last year's top 10 in front of you. Let's just start there. How credible are we? How difficult is this assignment, Jay? How did we do last year? Not great. You know, <laughs> it would not be a uh, an As a. bad as Pepperdine, number one from the year prior, because that was a major faux pas. I stand by that take, but <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, yeah, so we only got six of the top 10, okay. but it was a weird, it was a surprising season in a lot of ways. So oh. the four teams that we missed, I'll walk through them. So these were teams that ended this season in the top 10 that we did not have in our preseason rankings. Big glaring omission was Texas A&M at number three. We did not know about Salma Ewing's uh, announcement prior to making that. 
in hindsight, even without that announcement, they were a top 10 team. That is on us. The second is that's Michigan. a major unforced <laughs> error. Just for the record, that one hurts. Uh, that because one because Stoyana, like again, they them versus UNC was the best match we saw all season. Like no disrespect to the NC State UNC rivalries, and NC State went out and beat the the Tar Heels. That's probably the best win any team got this season. But the best match was the national indoor semifinals between A and M and UNC, and for us to not have them top ten crime. We also hadn't seen Kupris in action, True. who I think really With delivered the, Or Smetanikov, real deal. Right, and both had you know outstanding freshman seasons. So regardless, in hindsight, absolutely a top 10 team. Yeah, that hurts. So I'm like really afraid <laughs> now looking at this top 10. I'm like, oh my God, who did we screw up on? But carry on. So the next team that we missed was Michigan, who finished the season at number six. I'm going to say that we overcorrect on Michigan bias here. I'll I'll blame that. But uh, look, I think this Michigan team had one of their best seasons in program history last year and certainly elevated themselves with having an outstanding indoor stretch of the season. But yeah, we did not have them in the top 10. Lily Jones was really good, really fast. Julia Fliegner was as good as her fall results forecasted she might been. And then Gala didn't lose ever at the bottom of the lineup. And again, how replicable is that coming back for the Wolverines who bring back all their side starters minus Serdan, but add a new piece in Charney who had a really good fall and, you know, add a new piece in Ross as well from Vanderbilt. It's an open question that we will have as we debate our top 10 moving forward through the month. But yeah, I would, the big thing for Michigan was the national indoors. What they did there kind of caught lightning in a bottle and took off from there. They're not going to catch anyone off guard this season. They certainly, again, bring back a lot of experience. We will overcorrect this year. So the next team, which I we were on the bandwagon here. They just were not in our top 10. And I'm not sure anyone saw quite the ascension this rapidly was Iowa State, who finished the season in the top eight. But we were bandwagoners for... We invented you know. the bandwagon. I have no regrets. <laughs> yeah, so no regrets on that one. And the last one, I don't have any regrets on either because there is this tier of like 10 through 13, but it's Ohio State who snuck in there at number 10 that we didn't have in our top 10. So we were pretty anti-Big 10 last season in our rankings. Who did we wrongly include? Okay, so you ready for this list? Yes, Okay, so these are four teams that we included in the top 10 that did not finish in the top 10. The first is Oklahoma. We had them at number five. They finished at 13. They played a really good match with Georgia. I don't hate that one. The next was Duke. We had at number eight. They finished Oh, that was a UCLA-related loss. They don't finish outside the top 10. They got upset. So, again, I don't hate that one. The next is Virginia. They finished. We had them at nine. They finished at twelve. I mean, they that's, were the That was the right tier, though. That, that was the right tier. A and M preseason was all the same tier. Yeah. So I would say the biggest whiff here was USC. We had them at number ten, and we went back and forth about the inclusion of them in the top ten. They finished all the way down at twenty-five. Yeah, that one hurts. That's that's a, that's a massive miss. Iowa State's a massive miss, but we were correct in the direction of them in A and M, like that A and M and. USC were probably our two biggest misses uh, from last season's preseason rankings. But we had UNC number one. Like, how did we do relative to where teams ended? I'm curious. Like, did we get any directly correct? Yeah, we got the top. We got three of the top four correct. So we got North Carolina, NC State, and Georgia all in the top four. Shout out to Uh, us. You know, Stanford, we had it six. They finished at five. 
Pepperdine, we had it at seven. They finished at nine. That Texas match so, was maybe the best round of 16. So I got, I, I have no issues with our six of 10 sounds worse than it actually was. Again, A&M, USC, those are the ones I would like back. Now, for what it's worth, and I explained this on the men's side as well, but I want to do it again here. We expanded our preseason voting this year to try and make it more accurate. And what that, I, by that, I mean, I asked every voter, all five, to submit their top 15, not just their top 10 to see who would be considered, who would receive votes, who would receive points. Again, you finish 1 through 15, you received either 15 or 1 points in the rankings correspondingly. For what it's worth, we had, I believe, a total of, I'm doing some math in my head, I apologize, 20 teams received consideration for the preseason top 10. Those 20 teams are as follows, and I'm going to read randomly, I promise. Uh, Well, 20 teams considered for the top 15. Thank you. I appreciate that. And they were as follows. UVA, USC, Cal, Duke, Washington, South Carolina, UNC, Stanford, UGA, A&M, Oklahoma State, Pepperdine, Texas, Florida, Auburn, Oklahoma, Vanderbilt, Ohio State. I believe I ended on Michigan, NC State, Pepperdine. And I might have repeated some teams there. I apologize. But that is everyone we considered. I think I said Oklahoma State as well. So those are all the names we considered for the top 20. And that gets back to the point I made earlier, Jay. There is some real depth here in 2024 in the women's college tennis side. And it's just worth mentioning that obviously we had the top 100 Sensation with Schneider last year, Navarro, Stearns cracking the top 50 in their first 18 months on the Pro Tour. Things are going really well for the college tennis universe, and I think that depth or that fact is reflected in the depth we have this year. Like all the 20 teams we talked about, they all entered the season with a minimum of, hey, we're hosting the first two rounds of the NCAA tournament. Like I do think that depth is real, don't you? Well, that's certainly the expectation. I think it's yeah. interesting because there is a world where there is a clear top team that runs away with the title this year, and this depth really doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Or to me, that it's less about those teams from 12 through 16 and more about kind of the teams in the two through eight range. Like how deep is that top tier? Um, but I actually, I absolutely share your sentiment earlier about like the men's side. Like when I look at the women's lineups and you're looking down at number five, number six, the the depth in the lineups is absolutely still there. These are still all very, very strong teams. It was a really tough battle, uh, you know, to get into the top 10 this year. And there are teams that you could absolutely be seeing make very deep runs in this season that are left out of our top 10. Well, I think that's where the races get so fascinating. You look at the race for the top 16 to start, like a team like Virginia, you have Subash for another year. You bring back Ziadato. You bring back all of these different pieces, Heba Shake, that have just been there accumulating matches and success over the past two plus seasons. How does that team not expect to be top 16 at a minimum and you know in most years that's a top 10 preseason roster with the combination of experience and results they've put together and you know spoiler alert they're on the outside looking in of our preseason top 10 ranking I think you look at a team like Ohio State the Contos meter isn't going to be running forever like this is her final season when you have someone like that at the top of your lineup Sydney Ratliff only getting better with every passing day like that is a team with serious 
not just top 16, but like they want to beat Michigan, be in the top eight race this year. That's a realistic expectation for that team to set for themselves. They're on the outside looking in, like of that top eight race. USC, all the pieces. Is this the year it comes together? Cal, El Solo, Wiersholm. They've been around the block now for a while. Filler Moeller, one of the breakout players of the fall. Like there is a lot of depth there. And then you get to the dare I say, storyline that tops them all, is the SEC finally better than the ACC? Is that balance shifting this year for the first time in a long time? You look at the depth in the SEC. The Georgia A&M race persists, but boy, are those two teams maybe the best versions of themselves entering this 2024 season. The depth beyond that, Florida, Auburn, Vanderbilt, like South Carolina's Hamner and Ackley, that top two could go 2-0 and in every match they play, and South Carolina's just got to find a way to two more through five more points available. There is real depth there, and again, I'm not saying the ACC is bad. You have UNC, you have NC State as your flagpole teams moving forward. You feel pretty good about yourself no matter what, but you could argue the depth in the SEC is better for the first time in a long time, and I just... I'm fascinated by that top 16 race, Jay. There are more teams than spots available. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, These are all very, very good teams. So it's going to be very competitive. I recall in May we were looking at the top eight and top 16 watch, and those were very real races that came down to matches in conference championships for who would get the top eight spot, the top 16 spot. And I have no doubt that we were going to be in a very similar position in 2024 where we are going to have groups of teams all trying to elbow each other out for both of those very key ranking spots. We're going to be predicting conference champions later. You didn't take my bait, though. Is the SEC better than the ACC this year? I didn't mention Auburn, who this is a good transition. You mentioned Auburn. (laughs) Okay, well, I'm going to mention them again here. Like, they come in the year with top eight aspirations. Arsenault's back. Uh, Ansari's back. Ovunk's back healthy. She was playing one for them two years ago. All the freshmen, Carnicella, Bennett, et cetera, they're all uh, – Okatoye, they're all sophomores. Pretty good recruiting class as well. Like, uh, we'll talk about the teams. I want to run through the list of how many teams think they're a top eight team entering this year. But take that bait first. Is the SEC better than the ACC? I don't know if I'm willing to go that far because I do think there's a pretty big drop after the teams you mentioned, although you didn't mention a Tennessee team, right, who has been very strong these past few years. I think the gap is absolutely closed. uh, And they have continue to move upwards with some of their mid-tier teams. So there are more SEC teams that will be ranked in the 10 through 20 spot this year than in the past few years. It helps that I think Florida is continuing to get better. That has been one of that has been the premier program in the SEC uh, for its existence. So I'm not ready to say that yet, but it's certainly a very strong crop of teams. So let's go through the teams that have top eight aspirations this year. A&M. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Georgia. Yes. Do you think there's spots for both of them available? Yes. So that right there is two going to the SEC. Stanford, top eight aspirations. Yes. UNC. Yes. You should have said no just for the joke, obviously. So that's four right there. Michigan. Yes. Reigning NCAA finalist NC State. Yes. And if they don't get to the national indoors... Boy, oh boy, something went wrong this year. Oklahoma State. 
Yes. Maybe more so than anyone. They're hosting yeah. the final site. There's a desperation to get there for Chris Young in that program. So right there again, that's seven teams. Texas. Yes. I agree. Pepperdine. Yes. I agree. That's the conversation they've been in for years now. Mm -hmm. Why stop now? Florida. Now we get into a case where, like, I don't know if they fully believe that they should be a top eight team, where these other teams have been there these past few sure. years. Then let's go back to the been there category. Auburn. If not now, when? Like, it's just the seniors of it all. Like, if this yeah. this is a team, that's why I'd put them in this category. Certainly, the aspirations are there. Oklahoma as well, because, like, it's demand. Of course. Come on. We know Audra. We know what they're capable of. You're right. Then there's that next tier, like Florida, Vanderbilt, which is a younger group together. I think Ohio State, there might be a desperation factor. UVA, if you want to throw them in that first tier as well. But, like, you know, again. Duke? I mean. Duke, sure. Duke, I mean, they Miami with Noel, like if not now, when? It's 15 teams. There's only eight spots. Like it is a real race for the top eight. And I think all those 15 teams can make a legitimate argument to themselves in the mirror without laughing at themselves and being like you are being delusional with these expectations. I think they're realistic expectations for all these teams. I think that speaks to, again, the depth, the top end talent. It's going to be really fun to watch unfold, and obviously we had some disagreements in our deliberations. I want to talk about the most polarizing teams from a rankings perspective. Who are the highest deltas in terms of where one person put them and where the lowest person put them? I think the category that comes first is Texas. Texas was ranked as high as five for someone in our poll. They were ranked as low as 14th for another person in our poll. Now, maybe that other person just hadn't done their research. I'm not going to accuse them of that. But that's a significant delta. That's nine spots. And it speaks to the fact that even through the knowns, there are still unknowns about this Texas roster, Jay. Does that surprise you to hear that fact? It doesn't uh, because I think with Texas, you have the exact same team we had last year swap out Sasnaskaya or Kieran with Sasnaskaya from Old Dominion, the transfer, and then they bring in uh, the Charlotte, I'm blanking on her last name from Australia as a freshman who maybe that voter who had them as 14 did not know, but, uh, they, to me are the, uh, the gatekeeper of that sort of like top 10, top eight, because they're returning. That's where they finished last year, uh, in that range. And they're returning everyone essentially from that roster. So it doesn't surprise me that people might be higher and maybe weigh more of that experience factor by bringing back a lot of those same people, or it could speak to the fact that there are a lot of teams that have made very real jumps in our expectations for them this year. And therefore, if you just return the same team, maybe people don't feel as confident in that roster. The core is back. Shavatapan's back. Uvrutsky's back. Zanilova's back. Rivkin, Rapalu, Pachkaleva, and yep. Rapalu had a breakout fall. Out goes Kieran. In comes Sasnaskaya. You talked mm -hmm. about the freshmen they're getting from Australia as well. It's a real roster. And if you've learned anything about Howard Joffe teams of late, you've learned how they've peaked down the home stretch of the season. Now, again, there's some real depth existing already. For that roster that I think makes sense that we, you know, again, they would be in preseason top 10 conversation, but that feels like a team that's going to be really good at four, five, and six, and still going to be interesting to see how one, two, and three unfold for them. And that was the same recipe last year for the Longhorns. We saw it took a little longer for things to get cooking for them. They are certainly one of the most polarizing rosters we have in this list in terms of other deltas. Everything else is pretty tight. 
like A&M 3-6. Okay, I don't think that's that big. Auburn from as high as 8 to as low as 13. Again, that tier is pretty jammed up more broadly. NC State as high as 5, as low as 9. But again, everyone has them top 10. Maybe the most surprising thing is how uh, how unified a lot of these rankings are across the board. Jay, does that surprise you to hear? No, I actually thought it was pretty straightforward to slot in a lot of these top 10 teams. Uh, I actually thought NC State might have a lot higher volatility. This is a team that does lose, did lose its top two players from its NCAA finalist run last season. And there are a lot of new faces on that team, many of whom we really haven't seen break out uh, in the collegiate ranks. So I thought there could be more volatility on the NC State team. Yeah, uh, again, Rejecki hasn't had the greatest fall, and Crawley just beat her pretty soundly in the um, BNP Paribas event. But given how strongly she ended last season and given how well those teams are coached, how well they've progressed each of the last years, they always outperform the talent they have on paper, and they have a lot of talent on paper. So they're clearly a top-10 team. How high you are on them really just, again, depends on how Rejecki, Rinchelli, all these players. Is the Abrams fall real? Can Dittman continue the progress? How quickly do the freshmen get up to play? Perhaps that's a question we will examine over the next five weeks. But, you know, again— that Duke wasn't top 10 consideration, that feels significant. They're like, they really weren't knocking on the door, I'm just telling you folks. And that Vanderbilt was the team constantly everyone had knocking on the door of the top 10. They're maybe the one team I wish, I don't want to say I wish made it that didn't, but they feel like the young team that if anyone's going to just pop in a way maybe you didn't expect and be in top eight contention, Vanderbilt adding cross and, you know, again, with... Um, I'm blanking at who their number one. Celia Belmore, CB, uh, coming back as well. Uh, Bridget Samuel had a great Bridget, fall for them. Great fall for them coming off of a really good freshman year. Like They're a team that I think there's pretty clear unanimity. They're on the precipice maybe of something. We will not be revealing the top 10 on no. this show. And but I didn't win Chris w- either. And I will say when we look at – uh, Duke, for example, right? We talked about the four teams that we had in the top 10 last year. In general, I feel like when you underperform our expectations for you, it's a little hard to give you another vote of confidence. Uh, and I think that that certainly happened last season with Vanderbilt. It did for me personally, where I think there were higher expectations for that Vanderbilt team, certainly after they knocked off a Schneiderless NC State. And then for them to just trickle down trickle is generous uh down the rankings it tough to to feel and give them that vote of confidence to be the top 10 although certainly talent on paper with cross coming in they probably have a more talented roster than some of the teams we do have in the top 10 one team you wish made it into our preseason top 10 that didn't jay again without revealing what the top 10 looks like who's one team you wish was in that didn't i mean i should i should clarify all 10 teams in our top 10 were in some order in jay's top 10 well, I was going to say, look, uh, this is my top 10. Yeah, you, literally. You, you take know, it over. If you really wonder who runs the show here, this is my yeah. top 10. <laughs> and uh, and <laughs> there are some flips and things like that. But no, I think uh, the team I would most enjoy chatting with you about uh, that we will not be doing is Oklahoma. I like that. I like that approach. Explain. I have no idea what to make of this Oklahoma team. They have about... 
15 different players coming into that roster, none of whom I really know the level of, all feel like a similar level. This is an NCAA finalist team from 2022. You know they're going to maximize the talent from that team. I think this team could be end up very clearly in the top eight or not. I have no idea what to make of it. So that one I think would be the most enjoyable to go through and talk about some of the names and figure out what the projected lineup is going to be. That's the one that would probably be the most interesting to chew on. Guzman and Shisher being our one and two. After that, you're right. There's a menu of options, three through six, and it's like throwing a dart at a dartboard. And I'm sure if you ask Coach Cohen and the coaching staff at Oklahoma their, that question, they would also say, we don't know what our lineup's going to be in May quite yet. And the talent is certainly there. But again, Texas, Oklahoma State this year, it, it's a really good you know, Iowa State may fall off, but it, it's a tough Big 12. And if you're not prepared, you can get beat, particularly on the road in some weird and hostile environments. At Kansas is always a tough match. And at Texas Tech is always a tough match. No matter who's on their roster, it is a fascinating Oklahoma team. And there is some institutional know-how there that certainly would make them a fun conversation. My most fascinating team is South Carolina. Like, how do you have two of the 10 best players and not finish top 16? That honestly sounds more difficult than having two of the top 10 players and finishing top 16. And I just think something's going to click for South Carolina this year, and they're just going to sneak into conversations because Ackley and Hamner are that good. And it's just like, if not now, you lose Ackley. And so this has to be the year because you just don't replace someone like that very easily. They are a team I'm watching this season. Well, I'll tell you how you do it is you only have seven players on the roster. So for me, when you say something needs to click, I mean, some player needs to arrive at South Carolina to fill some of these roster holes. They have a few transfers, uh, one from ODU, one from FSU. Uh, but that's certainly if they're looking to make a deep run, they need to they need to spend their money on that eighth scholarship spot uh, and fill out that roster. Very fair. All right, last five for you again. We'll go through all of these a little bit quicker. Race for number one. Was it a tough decision in your mind? On the men's side, the Virginia, Texas, even Ohio State, who you have number one discussion is fascinating. On the women's side, you have a returning champion team that brings back their top seven and adds a blue chip as their eighth. As good as the Stanford roster is, and it's really, really good. A&M, Georgia, all these teams – you know, down the list, really, really good. UNC has to be number one. So no, I don't think this was nearly as tough of a race and nearly as fun as a discussion as it is on the men's side. I disagree. Ah. I'm just, I am just kidding. This is super straightforward. Ah. North Carolina, number one. I know you wanted me to zag. That's not. Can I zag? Can I zag? (laughs) Uh, Stanford's really good on paper. Like you have an NCAA singles finalist in, uh, Obviously, I'm blanking on names Connie right Ma. now. Yeah, I just did a lot of pods, so it's been a busy week. Connie Ma, Yepafanova, incredible, top 15 last year. Let's say Blokina takes a step forward. Let's say Blake duplicates her season where she was sneaky, top 25 all year long, really good NCAA run. You know, again, one of Huey, Yu, and Vicky, and, um, and Valencia, Valencia Shu. One of those three is not playing. That is as loaded options, one through six. They feel as confident probably at going into every singles flight as UNC does. And, 
you know, again, we're going to get to the gal discussion in a little bit, but like, it feels like it's up for grabs there for UNC. Is it Brantmeyer? Is it Crawley? Obviously, they got options everywhere, but Stanford has had two graduating classes finish without NCAA titles. 96-97, a stat you informed me of when I texted you that question not too long ago. This class is in jeopardy of becoming the third class to have that happen to them. Like, I'm... I'm just like on paper, this Stanford team is good enough to win a title. They made a semifinal last year as a core, so there is a little bit more institutional know how. I think they're going to be in the mix in bigger matches this year, just play more of them than they did last season. I don't know. Like, I, th- I think they're, again, it's UNC, yeah. but there is an argument to be made that Stanford on paper is as talented. Yeah, I mean, the, the question wasn't how good is the Stanford team. The question yeah. is, like, is there a debate between number one? And the answer is unequivocally no. All right, fair enough. You're not wrong. So let's move on to our next category, preseason conference champions. Let's make some predictions. We're going to stick to the power five for now. I want first and second place, or if you think there's going to be a split in the regular season conference title champion, because I think a lot of these are pretty lopsided conferences. Like, for instance, ACC you're picking UNC, correct, to sweep it. Pac-12, you're picking Stanford to sweep it. Correct. Big 10, you're picking Michigan to sweep it. Correct. So only two of these are fun. Let's start with the Big 12. Who are you picking and why? Because I think this is a split. I think we're going to get two. I think someone different wins the conference tournament than wins the regular season. So, okay, the Big 12 – there's usually a tie, I feel like, in the regular season, mm-hmm. and they have co-champions. So I'm going to say it's a tie between Oklahoma State and Texas, Okay. but I will say Oklahoma State will win the conference tournament. All right. By the way, who finishes second in the Big Ten? Ohio State. Finishes second in the ACC. NC State. I like that you wavered a little bit there. That leads to fun conversations down the road. Who finishes second uh, in the in the what conference? Pac twelve. This one is fun, by the way. This you, one is this one is a USC. This one USC UCLA Washington's Cal, always good. Cal's Cal. looking a lot better this season. I I might lean. This one's really tough. Second, that's why this is more fun than asking uh, who wins in these conferences. I don't. Uh, I'll go with. Do it. I'll go with USC. All right, I'd like to hear it. I'm going to go. Burned Ohio by them S- last season, though. I'm going to go Ohio State. I'm going to go NC State. And I'm going to go. Trojans as well. I'll stick with you. Solidarity in these moments is key. Big 12 wise, I'll take Oklahoma State to win the regular season. I'll take Texas to win the conference tournament. Um, Last but not least, the fascinating SEC. You go and split. Who you got here? I am going to say that Georgia defends and wins the conference tournament. And I'm going to say that we have a tie between Georgia and A&M in the regular season. I agree with the premise that the winner of the regular season title will have a loss, maybe even two. 
I'm going to go the other way, A&M, Georgia, but other way in terms of regular season and conference tournament title. Two really good rosters, a lot of really good rosters in the SEC. It's going to be a very yeah. fun race at the top. They could get yeah. six top 16 teams. Yeah, and they're going to have a lot of tough road matches as well. Yeah. All right, last three questions for you. And as anticipated, by the way, far more efficient than Chris Halioris. The debates aren't quite as fun on the women's side preseason rankings, not in terms of specific teams, but more broad the picture as it is the men's. And I think that's partly a byproduct of it as well. But you're killing it as always, my friend John J. Parsons. This is exactly the start we're looking for. And you know we can't do a preseason podcast without discussing my favorite topic next. Who's the gal? Entering the season. Is it someone for UNC? The problem is, do you pick Crawley? Do you pick Brantmeyer? Brantmeyer just won Fall Nats and wins a doubles title there as well. But Crawley's Crawley and represents Team USA at the BNP Paribas event. Do you go with someone like Fung Run Tien, who's the reigning NCAA champion and still on the roster? For UCLA, do you pick a wild card, maybe NCAA singles finalist from 2022, uh, Connie Ma. Um, notice I almost forgot her last name again. Maybe you go with a wild card in this race. Jay, who are you considering in this discussion as we start the season? Well, I think Stoyana this... should have said yeah, her name. Yeah. I say right now, this is a two-way race for me between Mary Stoyana and one of Fiona Crawley and Reese Brantmeyer. Okay. I think it's, you know, Crawley, of course, didn't play that much during the fall season, so has already lost some of that luster compared to last season when she went undefeated in the fall, won the two main national titles. So this is going to come down to who com- be- plays number one for them. I think both of those players are very much in the running for the Triple Crown conversation, which is something we have never seen on the women's side. That's winning team singles and doubles in the same year. So that will be fun to monitor. So I think that that is the the one-two punch right now. My one wild card here is Anastasia Komar of Oklahoma State. And the reason why I bring her up is I think Oklahoma State is looking for a breakout season. Certainly they are hosting NCAAs. I think there is a story to be written that one of those players, either her, Kajuru, one of them takes that mantle, has a very similar run to Oklahoma State's number one player back in 2016 when they made the NCAA finalist in Katarina Adamovich. So she's my wild card. It's a fun wild card to have. I think Connie's the one sitting on the horizon where Stanford wins it, and if they win it, it's because she had a massive bounce back year. Or a Yepa Finova took another step forward as a number one player. I think a Stanford player has to be in the discussion. I'd also put a Vidmanova, uh, a uh, Riasco, whomever, or a Vecic, whoever plays number one for Georgia, in that conversation as well. The dark horse is also a Kari Miller, Jaden Brown duo. Like if Michigan wins the national indoors, which isn't an un like crazy impossibility, it's because those two are playing elite tennis and playing like two of the top ten players in the country. And you know, again, I think they're dark horse candidates for a Michigan team. That's very much now or never. Again, a group with two seniors leading the way who have proven they can play at that level. But I agree with your assessment more broadly. Well, if we're going to go that deep on the the bench here, the two other players who certainly have a claim at this are Ayanna Ackley and yes, Sarah Hamner. Very one true. of them will play if number South one. If South Carolina for that ends team. up top 16, you're right. Then they have to be in the conversation. Exactly. If they carry that team to even a, a, a top 16 or even push for a top eight, 
Uh, and one of them has a very deep run, like you saw Ackley have at NCAAs this past year. They very much are in this running. They are likely to play doubles together as well, unless they split them up. But I think those two would be in the running. Fung run on the list as well. And then shout out to Scotty. Five national indoors if UNC wins this year consecutively would be a hell of a run in a fascinating way for her to end her indoor career. All right, last two for you. Program on the hot seat. Doesn't mean you think the coach is going to get fired, but a team you think needs to do some serious winning this year and one you'll be watching closely. Well, Coach, I do think on the hot seat would be TCU women. I think I've mentioned that before. I think when I think about these hot seat conversations, I always look to programs that have very strong either men's or women's programs. And the TCU men have been consistently strong for a very long time now. And the TCU women have not been a factor at all in the Big 12 for years. So that's a program that has to do winning, I think, both of the uh, Pac-12 Southern California schools, USC and UCLA, need to have a breakthrough this season as well. They both have uh, have had some down years over the past few years. We mentioned USC finishing 25 last year. UCLA helped redeem their season, certainly, with the run from Fang Grantian to the NCAA singles title. They get the upset over Duke. You're looking for both of those teams to bounce back this season. Uh, those are three teams in different categories, but three teams I have on the list. All excellent picks. I think UCLA has to be on there. You have the NCAA singles champion. If Kimmy Hans is back as well, like that's a team that should be in top 16 contention. We haven't mentioned them at all. I'm going to put Miami in this conversation. You have one of the five best players in Alexa Noel, and that's a finite amount of time you have her. The past two seasons with the talent they have had, they should have made a final sight. They haven't. Now, it's been some tough luck from a draw perspective. Certainly, going to Pepperdine in 2022 was as tough of ask as anything out there, and they were the nine seed. This team should be better than that. Like, this team, the roster they've had, how difficult it is to play the Miami-Florida State back-to-back, that they beat NC State last year and really weren't a part of the NCAA conversation at all. Like, they didn't perform to their ceiling last year, and they haven't been a top 10 team consistently in more than half a decade and they are one of those programs historically who have been in the mix so I would throw Miami in this conversation as well but again hard to knock your picks uh, for this selection my final question for you it's December there are gonna be roster surprises you talk to every coach they'll still say hey we have someone coming in January so don't forget about us in the rankings what are the biggest roster questions remaining for you Jay well, I alluded to one earlier, which is that South Carolina has seven players. Uh, that could be a huge make or break for that team to, if I'm Ackley and Hamner, I'm begging for like, where's our eighth teammate? Uh, so that's certainly one of them. Two other schools that are uh, low on bodies right now on their roster. The first is Pepperdine. So still not, and this is a theme we've seen over the past few years. They don't have eight on that roster right now, to me, the question is, does Lisa Czar come back? Are they able to bring back their entire top three from last season? Another team that does not appear to have all eight scholarship players is Texas A&M. This is the same school that we talked about earlier that gave us the December surprise of Salma Ewing transferring from USC to Texas A&M. I think if they really want to compete for number one, they're probably a player short right now. They're a Fruver Tovo away. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, and then my last is more of a health question. So we've alluded to Florida seeming to be quite strong this season. They have a few players that we really haven't seen a lot of. In particular, we haven't seen Alicia Dudney at all in the fall. She has not played since May. So if they are going to be a top 10-ish team this season, they're going to need all those players back because they're sick strong and that's about it. Yeah, I those all on my list. I agree. I think that's who you're looking for more than anything else as we wrap up this fall is are there again that Pepperdine roster more than anything you're like, "Hey, do you need me to play? Like what's the deal at this point?" Um and again, is our coming back fascinating questions remaining. Hopefully we will have answers by the time we preview them on our show. In the meantime, That'll do it. Again, that's your look behind the process of how we came up with our top 10. Now, over the next five weeks, we will unveil our top 10 teams. We'll start at 10. We'll get to our preseason number one before we get to the start of the college tennis season. And then before you know it, we'll have 2024 play to break down each and every week on the deciding point. Jay, you've been busy. Again, a lot of great interviews over the offseason. Talk to our listeners. No ad, no problem. What are you up to in the month of December? What can we expect? Yeah, a few of the most recent interviews we had were Garrett Johns of Duke, fifth year there, talked a lot about what it's like taking the fall off, what you do when you're not enrolled, playing pro events, how that compares to being in college. A most recent coaching interview released uh, this week was uh, the new head coach of Penn, Rich Bonfiglio, really chatted deeply with him about what it looks like to take on a program and and build it up in your own vision. Uh, particularly, we've seen the rise of Ivy League tennis with top Americans. We talked about why that is the case, some of the challenges that you have in the Ivy League, such as no scholarships. So uh, we've been busy, I think, over the next few weeks. You can expect to see more interviews for from people in and around the tennis world and, of course, the preseason content. Yeah, I love to hear it. Well, we look forward to having you for another season. You always make our content better. A thank you to you for joining me tonight. A thank you, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, as well, for the f*** of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. Again, December may be the off-season in the tennis world. It's our busiest month from a podcasting perspective here at Cracked Rackets, and certainly we are looking forward to it to the conversations we have ahead in the future. In the meantime, though, for the fantastic John J. Parsons, our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Jay, what do we tell our listeners? Hey, great shot. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.